If you have your Bibles, please open them to Philippians chapter 4. I suppose I could also say, if you don't have your Bibles, open your phones or turn your phones to, or whatever electric devices you use to work through the Scripture. Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle's ending his discussion of his central matters, and he's concluding in verses 10 and following with just some personal uh, gratitude and reflection on the Philippians' relationship to him. And as he does this, he thanks them in an offhand way, um, probably in some ways, in some sense, not to indicate that they are, um, that he's accountable to them in the sense of like they're his boss, but to suggest that they're gospel partners, that they're partners with him in ministry. So I, th- I think it frames well for us then thinking through how we give and to whom we give, why we give. Uh, what is our goal of giving? I think this text and the text following in next week will help us to think through giving well. If you're a normal American, you probably have a somewhat anxious and frustrated view of money in light of the church if you're normal. I think most people feel like the church sometimes um, co-ops as a business for which you trade money for an exchange of goods and ministry and services type of thing. And sometimes I know people feel as though the, the church tries to shake them down, tries to get their money. Um, as someone who both leads the organization and as someone who shepherds the people in our church, I can sense the tension to really desire to see you guys give well. It'd be a whole lot easier to lead the organization if you guys just dumped your bank accounts into ours. And I think some pastors pastor that way. And think about the leverage a pastor can twist with. I mean, who should you love more than Jesus? To whom should you give more than Jesus? And, And so the pastor, if he's not careful, has this spiritual club with which to just clobber people with, with this spiritual guilt to give more, to be more generous, and, and holding this sense of like spiritual power to advance the organizational goals the pastor maybe rightly even has. Of course, then the, the flip side is, and this is the pastoral tension, I think this passage really helps us think through in, in terms of ministry-wise, some of the, the concerns a pastor should have is the apostle shepherds the church. But as a pastor, I want you to consider that, that worship is an, or excuse me, giving is an act of worship. So for a pastor to do two things that's really dangerous, for, for him not to teach about giving leads you to a place where you're disobedient, you're robbed of the opportunity to worship, you're spiritually limping because you're not doing this essential act of sacrificial love and worship to the Lord. That's pastoral malfeasance. For him not to explain to you the, the full breadth of God's expectation that you worship, not merely through singing and not merely through reading the word, but also through giving sacrificially. So a pastor dare not say nothing. Right? Like, he, he can't say nothing. And on the flip side, he might leave you to believe that giving is merely optional. Like, hey, give as you feel burdened. Maybe, maybe then we could say, like, the pastor can overburden the church, too. That, you know, the, the, the burden of ministry is heavy on the church. 
in a way that might be inappropriate. Uh, for instance, if, if, I am a, if I'm a manager of a company and I'm overspending and not careful with the money, I might shift the blame to some other part of the company, like we're not charging enough for our product. You know, so if I'm a bad manager pastorally and we're overspending, we're not wise in our stewardship of resources, and then I turn to you all and say, well, you guys better suck it up, man. We're not giving enough money. Pay more. Right? The, the problem is not actually that you're not giving generously. The problem is that I'm spending like crazy as a leader. So in all of that complexity, churches often get this really, really wrong. And so this passage helps us because it gets it right. You know, so have you ever been in a church that's gotten it wrong? Have you ever felt, felt as though like someone grabbed you by the ankle spiritually and just shook you upside down for all the money they could get out of you? Or maybe a church that's so gentle in its call for you to give that you never felt this spiritual burden to worship and give sacrificially. And you're just kind of left with the, well, I guess, you know, five bucks, 20 bucks, whatever. We just give how we feel. Uh, let me suggest to you that this passage and the next one will challenge you to have a godly perspective on how we view giving, particularly on who we give and why we give. So the theme I have for this morning from the text in verses 14 through 17 is give deeply to God's work. And so I think the obligation for, for the, the, uh, the sermon this morning is to help you see that this is in fact what the text is saying. So I'm going to back up into verse 10. I'm going to run down through verse 20. And the whole theme really has a lot to do with finances. He says in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that at length you've revived your concern for me. He's talking about their financial concern. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That whole section has major themes dealing with finances. The Apostle Paul is reflecting on their giving. It says, I'm thankful that you've revived your concern for me. You've been giving to me. Thank you for giving. Right? There's this gratitude to God for their gift. And then he says, but I'm content. Now, in some ways, I, I don't think I would respond very well as a dad if my children had that response at a birthday party. Some sweet person, a friend of theirs, gives them a gift, and they're like, oh, I already have this. I'm content. I didn't need it. It feels a little bit insulting, maybe, for the Philippian church, but his point is, while he's very grateful for the gift, the gift is not something that caused his relationship to them to be one of a, a hand held out. I, I was not relating to you as the impoverished speaker who's just begging for crumbs from your table. Because I'm content. 
His contentment is in Christ. Now, if we were to go back through the letter, you'd see that the Apostle Paul says, this is what we have in common. Is we are, we are those who love Christ. We pursue Christ. In fact, in chapter 3, he makes Christ a central theme where he says, I am pressing forward and I, I count all things lost except the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so when he comes into chapter 4 and he says, listen, I'm content. I didn't need money because I had Jesus. I was walking in the Lord and he was strengthening me so I wasn't needy of your gift. His point is that his satisfaction in Christ allows him to be content regardless of wealth or poverty. Maybe we could say somewhat like in a marriage, better or worse. He's content for better or worse in richness or in poverty, in health, in sickness. He's content because he has Christ Jesus. A quote from Jonathan Edwards I think is, is relevant to this point. True gratitude or thankfulness to God for his kindness to us arises from a foundation laid before of love to God for what he is in himself, whereas the natural gratitude has no such antecedent or foundation. The gracious stirrings of a grateful affection to God for kindness received always are from a stock love already in the heart, established in the first place on the grounds of God's own excellency. Hence, the affections are disposed to flow out on occasions of God's kindness. The saint, having seen the glory of God and his heart being overcome by it and captivated with a love to him on that account, his heart hereby becomes tender, easily affected with kindness received. And the point Edwards is making is that owning Christ is enough. Right? Like, that's enough. Like, the heart is satisfied if it has Christ. It knows what that is to have him. Why would, I, why would the apostle Paul be reaching out with grasping hands for more of the Philippian money if he has all of the treasures contained in Christ? He is satisfied and grateful and thankful for owning Christ. And so in Christ, he is satisfied. And through Christ's strength, he has enough. But that leads him to the text that we're looking at this morning in verse 14. He says, yet it was kind of you. So while he is content... While he's satisfied, he still has this tension. He's saying, but what you did was good. That word good has the idea of beauty and intrinsic value. Like it is a glorious, sweet, beautiful, good thing that you did. And I would suggest to you then he explains why it was good. Because you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me. Now catch, catch what he said there. He said, that in gospel ministry, as that gospel came to you, no other church was partnering with me in this gospel ministry except you. Now, and I think we get the, the first major thematic point of giving is our giving is, is meant to be a partnership in gospel work. Not just good work, but gospel work. The Apostle Paul is a minister of the gospel, and as he comes to the church in Philippi, maybe you remember this, he was imprisoned and stoned in reverse order, right? He's beaten and, 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 and then imprisoned with Silas. As he's there in prison, they realize they've done this to a Roman citizen and they release him. Well, the earthquake releases him, but then they come the next day and apologize and tell him that they were going to release him anyway. And, and Paul makes him do that publicly. You might recall that. Shortly thereafter, he goes over to Thessalonica. And in Thessalonica, a city not far away, the Philippian church begins to support him financially 
as they partner together with him in gospel work. Now, even if you go back to verse 7 of chapter 1, this is how he views them. He says, it is right for me in chapter 1, verse 7, for me to feel this way about you or think this way about you. Because I hold you in my heart for you are partakers. That's that idea of partnership again. With me of the grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So the Apostle Paul views this church in Philippi that he, he started years before as partners with him through their giving and through their collaborative work with him, through their prayer with him, through their hearts being with him. He says, you're partners with me in the gospel. In, in the message that Jesus Christ has died for sinners to save them from sin, the message that is going out from the ministry of apostles like me, your partners with me in this. Chapter 127, he says, Let your life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He views not only like the church broadly speaking, but even within the church, that they are partners together striving for the gospel. Again, let me just suggest to you that there is missional purpose in giving then. We give for the gospel to be brought to people in, in places and areas where they don't know, but also in places like ours. In fact, I would suggest to you that your home desperately needs the message of Christ, repeated and lived out. That the gospel ministry is not merely the introduction to Jesus and then we're done. I think Matthew 28 makes this abundantly clear, but let me just remind you, gospel ministry, Jesus says, is to make disciples. That might be entry. Then what do we do with those disciples? We baptize them. That means gospel ministry is inherently church ministry, right? No person is the agent of baptism. The agent of baptism is the church body, right? Our church baptizes people. Mark doesn't. I mean, I might be the dunker, but the body is the authorizing authority of it under, under the work of Christ. So, we make disciples, we baptize them, and then we teach them to observe all things. That's a comprehensive task no individual is capable of doing. Like, I will be dead and gone before all of God's commands are effectively enunciated to the people in such a way they obey and do and hear them. There is no way that command is, is laid down at the foot of any individual as an individual. That's church work. That's gospel work. So, so think about then our giving. We are partnering in gospel work. I give so that the message of Christ is proclaimed in such a way that disciples are made, disciples are validated in churches through baptism, and then instruction in the gospel happens so that disciples are shaped more and more to follow Christ. This is how giving is meant to be, that I would energize that work. So let me throw a couple stones. We live in a culture where um, 
Like 501c3 charitable organizations like pop up like weeds. In fact, um, my son plays for a football organization that is a not-for-profit organization. If you want to give them money, they will take it. And it's just peewee football. Let's be careful that we don't consider giving to good things. I mean, let's assume football is good. Let, let's, let's not confuse giving to something good as to what the New Testament is calling upon you to do. There's a distinct difference, I think we can all see, between giving to a peewee football club that's not for profit and giving to the church of Christ. But somewhere on that spectrum, I think we can lose sight of this. There's, there's a difference between the church and the Girl Scouts. I mean, I like the cookies. But that is not gospel partnership. But we go down that spectrum and you get places like the Red Cross and Salvation Army. And, and you move in this spectrum, I'm going to say this somewhat boldly here, so forgive me and if you don't like it, you can tell me I'm wrong afterwards. But I think biblically this is right. That essentially we have two outlets for giving under this umbrella of gospel partnerships. And that is essentially church workers like church planters and missionaries that are pioneering new fields and our local church. We don't have hardly any other room. Now, we have parachurch organizations like, you know, there are colleges and camps and ministry centers. But I think we're moving away from that umbrella because rightly, they can't baptize. Like, I, I will be offended by any Christian camp baptizing because they're not authorized any more than the eight-year-old is authorized to marry his neighbor with his sister in some playing house type of thing. Like, they are not authorized. The church is. So we partner with gospel ministries. Which, to me, one of the burdens then is for the church to be really deliberate about this. Where should our money go? To gospel preaching, raising up men to go plant more churches, or they themselves are planting churches, and, and we send them and energize them to do the work. So I, I am, I think this morning even, we, we prayed for the Pitsleys in Nairobi, um, my, my burden for the Pitsleys is that they would be deeply involved in church work, raising men in the context of Kenya and East Africa, East Africa to be godly, rich, faithful pastors, church planters, and ministry leaders in the context of the churches. That's, why, that's because this is the context of gospel ministry. I'd like to suggest to you that it's not merely that we're partnering in gospel work. We're partnering to care for the needs of the gospel ministers. Look again at the text. It was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help. For what? For my needs. And we'll see this emphasized in a couple different places in the New Testament letters that the, Paul, that the Apostle Paul writes. But if you're tracing his missionary journey... See so if I can do this backwards for you also. It's for, well, forwards for you, backwards for me. 
So, so if you trace the, the line of like Turkey's over here, and you have the Macedonia flowing down, and then it turns into Greece down here in the Aegean Sea on that, that coastal line. So you have, you have Philippi up here. This is where he gets imprisoned. He leaves Philippi, and, he, and he's moving southward, and then he gets to Thessalonica. That's his next city. He goes from there, and he heads down towards Corinth. In Corinthians, in the Corinthians, in Corinth, as he's working in the Corinthian church, no church is serving and caring for him, not even the Corinthians. The only church that's supporting him financially is the church in Philippi. And as, as he mentions that, I think he's trying to keep the church of Thessalonica from looking bad, because who's not giving to him down in Corinth? Thessalonica. So he says, when I was down here, the only church that was giving to me is Philippi. And he says, and even back in Thessalonica when I was there, you were, you were giving to me at the very outset. So Paul is looking back over his ministry and he's accounting to them the ways in which God has provided for him through their giving. I think he's doing this by way of saying thank you without, again, without obligating himself as someone who's submissive to them. He's an apostle over the church. He is not their employee. And so I would look at myself as having some sense of obligation to you all as an employee of the church. But, but I think there's a, a caution that pastors don't view themselves as, as submissive to the church when it comes to shepherding. Right? A shepherd is over the flock. He's an overseer. And so the Apostle Paul is really careful in his language here. Notice you don't see the word thank you. It's not that he's not unthankful. In fact, he says, I rejoiced greatly that you gave me this gift. But his point is very careful to the church. You gave to me, and I want to account for all the ways you've been gracious in giving to me. But even so, I am not your errand boy. I am not doing this because I am accountable to you. I'm accountable to God, but even through this, God supplied for my needs. In fact, if you just go back to chapter 2, you'll see how he talks about Epaphroditus. Remember Epaphroditus? I mean, I know some of you are thinking, my next child. That's what I'm going to name him, Epaphroditus. He says, I, you know, Epaphroditus, verse 25, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to what? To my need. Go down to verse 30. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he looks at the, the Philippian church as providing what he needed and cared for what he thought was lacking in their, their support of him. He says something similar. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 11. He said, um, well, let, let me just clip this off a little bit just for sake of time. He says, when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden, burden anyone for brothers who came from Macedonia you remember where Philippi is from? Philippi is in Macedonia. So he's talking about the, 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 the church in Philippi. He says, For brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening any of you in any way. Now he says, I did this as an act of love. So just to, just to frame out what the apostle's concern is often in gospel ministry. He does this in Thessalonica and in Corinth. 
he doesn't take money from his missionary church plant. So, like, maybe to give you an example, if you go to an impoverished country, whether it's in South America or in Africa, and you go in as a church planter, and the first thing you do after giving them the gospel is hold your hand out and say, so give me some money. It is very likely that what they're hearing is this is a way to earn income. And Paul's very careful. He says, when I came to Corinth, I was not peddling the gospel, as some do. His point is, is that some people, they do gospel work for personal gain. And so he's very careful not to confuse the Corinthians. It would be not uncommon for Greek um, speech givers, basically entertainers, to give a speech and hold out their hat like a guy on the street playing music. And they open his violin case or guitar case and, you know, you throw money in there and, and he's peddling his music. There's nothing shameful about him doing that with music. But when it comes to the gospel, we give the gospel, like God, free of charge. Right? I mean, there's, there's no door fee to come in here, right? Like, we don't have bouncers like, hey, did you give your 20 bucks? You know, no, no one's doing that with the church, nor should we. We've got some guys who could be bouncers. But the point is, is, is he's careful. So if the Apostle Paul is not taking, if he's not offering the gospel with charge, how does he survive? He survives through the church of Philippi, giving him money. They're supporting him. All right, so we partner in gospel works. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear that this is something that's happening on the basis of need. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says this. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In fact, I think it's one of the reasons we should have a very cautious view about lay pastors. Because I think the church is obligated to give to its leaders financially as needed. I want you to hear that command again. This is what the apostle says. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. It's right for the church to take care of its pastors. But particularly in pioneering new works, the Apostle Paul is very careful that finances do not become the front door of gospel ministry that people see first. Because it is those who have Christ, who are walking in Christ, who love Christ and treasure him. And out of that joy in Christ they give. When the gospel is, is brought to a new place and the first thing you hear is, so give some money, it twists the gospel into a, into a, a mercantile exchange. You give merchandise the gospel message for money. That's just icky. It's a really theological word for bad. Okay, so you're with me right now, right? Partnering in gospel work by, by caring for the needs of gospel ministers so that we partner in the fruit of gospel ministry. Look again in, in Philippians chapter 4. I think this is where the Apostle Paul really has an interesting spirit. And it's helpful for those in leadership as well as those who give. It says, you gave to me in Thessalonica, you repeatedly gave, verse 17, not that I seek a gift. So, so he is not writing this thank you to get more giving. Why is he writing this thank you? 
Why is he, why is he doing this? He says, I don't, I don't seek another gift. I don't seek more giving, but I seek fruit that increases to your account or your credit. Okay, so he says, we, we give to gospel partners to care for their spiritual and physical needs so that we become partakers, not only in the burdens of ministry, but in the blessings of ministry. Not only in caring for their physical needs, but sharing in their spiritual rewards. Again, I seek fruit that increases. So let me just give you two ways I think we, we see fruit in giving. Second Corinthians 9, 6 says this, Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. I mean, if we were just to quote this, it is more blessed to give. Really? Now think about that one for a minute. It's more blessed to give? Do you believe that? Do you believe it's more blessed to give than to get? I think some of us really enjoy giving. My kids really enjoy giving with my money. (laughs) I mean, Christmas is just pure gold. They get gifts, and they give gifts with my money. It's like win-win in the truest sense of the word for them. But if it is so glorious to give, why is your wallet stuck in your pocket? If it's so glorious to give, why are you navigating through your finances with a stingy heart? If it's truly better to give, why is it better? Like, what makes it better? Because when I give, I have less money. I don't know how it works in in your math and accounting, but I feel like if I give you $10, I have $10 less. And I think I spend my money better than you spend my money. Right? Like, it doesn't feel like that's true. And the Apostle Paul is pressing the point here, is something happens in giving for which we should find goodness and value. It's not a loss. And so he uses this this fruitful word. It's a a crop word. It's like when when you plant something, there's a yield. And I am not about to use the idea of seed money on you all. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Like in in prosperity type of churches, like, hey, you give 10 bucks, God will give you 100 bucks. Boy, offering plate gets filled up. And it can make God look like a liar. God does not promise to Pour out on you riches financially. Here's what he does say. He says, you might be a a partaker, a participant in the fruit. Okay, so if we are partners with gospel ministers and we care for their needs, that same partnership is what happens in the fruit Make it think of it like this. Do you think that the Apostle Paul, when he gets to heaven, will be welcomed with eternal riches? And the Philippians will share in the reward of the Apostle Paul. So, so the picture is something like this. Almost like with investment terms, 
they have invested in the apostles' ministry. And as that ministry produces eternal fruit and glory for God, there is an outcome for the Philippians as sharers in the apostles' fruitful ministry. Now, I can just tell you that if the Apostle Paul came through as a missionary, I would want to make sure I latched onto his eternal rewards, wouldn't you? Because this is, this is not a, an alien concept to the rest of the New Testament. In fact, there's a warning about laying hands on anyone who's young or inexperienced, lest you become partaker of his evil deeds. And the point is, is that ministry partnerships really truly work this way. That by strengthening the apostles' ministry, the Philippians actually are investing in Paul and receive the rewards for which he also is working. So that in heaven, the, I'm going to use financial terms for just a second, just to see if I can say this well. Let's say the Apostle Paul's one of those like crazy investments that earns 300% on the investment. You give a dollar, you get three back, right? I think that's how 300% works. I'm a Bible guy, though, so don't, don't hold me to it. As they invest in Paul at that 300% rate, you know, Paul's ministry is bigger than the Philippians giving alone, but they get a 300% rate of return on their giving in heaven because that's what the apostle did. They've become partakers in his increase. I think this is backed up. For instance, Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Or Galatians 6, 9, and 10 continues, So let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give. But I think the Apostle Paul is also encouraging them to recognize that giving is its own reward. That is, it's good to give. You could say it as the next few verses kind of amplify, God is pleased with sacrifice. Sacrifice is worship. But this is sacrifice that accomplishes something. So God is not wanting merely a burnt offering, which is a type of worship. So in a burnt offering, the offering gets... So I track, I know it's super complex. In a burnt offering, the offering gets... It's of no benefit to anyone except God. It's a sacrifice to God. No human gets the benefit of it. It gets burnt. Okay, so God is not asking for us to take our bills and light them on fire and burn them. But there is something good in just that. That is, treasuring Christ more than the treasures we hold. That is an expression of spiritual richness in Christ. That is its own goodness. You know, we, could, we could take Christ's words that where your treasure is, there your heart is. Okay, so notice how that verse says, where you put your treasure, your heart is. So it doesn't say, like merely, lay up treasures in heaven. He's, he'll say that later. But he's saying a reflection of your heart and maybe where your heart ends up is those things you treasure with money. If you invest all of your money into making your house beautiful and fixing up your house and cultivating a beautiful home and Joanna Gaines is jealous of you and you put all of your money in that, where your treasure is, there your heart 
is. So when the Apostle Paul sees the church treasuring the gospel, treasuring Christ, he says, this is fruit to your credit. What a rich expression of worship that your treasure exegetes your heart. How do I know where your heart is? Your bank account. So when your, when your treasure gets invested in gospel ministry, it is worship of the highest order. Because it is taking, it is taking that thing that is such a good tool for work in this world, money, and making sure that that tool does not own your heart, does not become your treasure, and in fact expresses, expresses the treasuring of Christ. The discipline of giving is worship. It is fruit to your account. Not merely because you become a partaker in Paul's ministry, the apostle says, but because it expresses a maturity and a value of Christ that is its own glorious goodness. So, kind of putting it, putting it all together then. We, we partner in gospel work, right? By taking care of gospel ministry needs. And we do this so that we receive the fruits of gospel partnerships. That is, that is, we treasure and value the Christ of the gospel and we treasure the servants of the gospel as we become partakers with them in their ministry. So as we think about missionaries, I'd like to just put some words on this. When we think about missionaries, we should be recognizing that as they come through and say, hey, would you consider supporting us? Like some of the ways in which we find loyalties, like, oh, well, you know, they're so-and-so's daughter-in-law and son. Like, if they're not going to minister faithfully for Christ, we should not hitch ourselves to their condemnation, right? This also means, like, within the context of Bakersfield, the types of things that our church connects to, the types of money that you give to people, you should be cautious that you're not giving to those things that are not valuable gospel partners. Now, by this, I'm not trying to say don't give to a football club or the Red Cross, but don't give to them as though you're giving to God. Right? Like, I, I think we should do good to all men. You know, so if, if the Salvation Army is doing a good job of caring for poor people in our community, then it, by all means, you should, you should be able to give them money and feel good about it. But if you're giving to them for gospel ministry, for the, for the worship of Christ, I would caution you to make sure that their gospel is actually God's gospel. So for this reason, I would, I would recommend with all pastoral call to carefulness not to give to any organization that's spiritually flawed or dishonors God. It's one of the reasons I think we should be very careful about our partnerships with churches that are outside of the gospel. And by very careful, I mean we shouldn't. Because, because they're, not, they're not legitimate gospel partners. And I really do not want to stand in heaven accountable for advancing the cause of someone who's an enemy of Christ. I think when it comes to sending men and women overseas, we want to make sure they get the gospel 
One of, the, one of the qualifications I've tried to encourage our church to think of is if we wouldn't hire them on our leadership team here, we probably shouldn't hire them to be on someone else's leadership team. <laughs> like, like, we do not want to give the world our cast-offs. Like, yeah, we, no room for you here. I mean, yeah, we have an opening, but we wouldn't want you. So, yeah, we'll send you to Africa. <laughs> like, that's horrible, right? Like, it, we should look at, at the servants we send overseas and be like, man, I wish we could have you stay here, but, man, we're so pleased that you have a burden to minister to, to brothers and sisters overseas or to plant churches overseas. We think you're good for our ministry. We would love to have you here, but we're sending you to serve there. So if you're not qualified to be a pastor in the States, you're not qualified to be a pastor. We shouldn't send you to be a leader and a pastor somewhere else. Again, we're thinking about gospel ministry partnerships that take care of the needs of gospel servants and obedience to Christ so that we become partners with these people, both in the act of worship of obeying Christ and partner with them in their obedience to Christ. That's a big deal. It makes giving a big deal. Next week, we're going to look more at the worship elements in it, the particular ways in which individuals worship God and he's pleased. Let me just encourage you. This passage says nothing about how much. Right? So there's no minimum. There's no maximum. But I think most of us need to be careful that we don't think unbiblically about this. That is, we don't think it's good that I only have to give so much. If this is an act of worship, what energizes it is not the dollar amount, but it's Christ. Our love for him. Our desire to see the gospel advance. The burden of ministry and the need to share that burden among the whole church. These are the things that motivate us from this text. All right, let me end with this last thought. The gospel is the message about God and so it's really about God. And I would just push on that point. If, if you think that, that giving is merely about the servant, the apostle is telling you to look bigger. Right? Like, like if I preach really bad sermons and you give less, and then I preach really good sermons and you give more, your giving is about the preaching, not about the Savior. And I think if that motivates us, then our giving is deep and joyful and stable. But if our giving is because we like something, our giving probably is reflecting a little bit of a consumer market. Right? Like, I will pay a lot more for a Toyota than I will a Nissan. And so when there's Nissan preaching... Giving goes down. When there's Lexus preaching, like, you know what I'm saying? But there's always Jesus. And if he's where our eyes are looking when we give, our, preach, our, our giving, our preaching probably should be stable too, but our giving is energized by him. Because then we're not asking the secondary questions that aren't really helpful. We're asking, is Christ worth it? And we give. Is his message being preached? And we give. And then we ask, is this place glorifying God through the preaching of the gospel? 
and we give? Is this person faithful to Jesus Christ and we give? We start asking these quality questions about the message and the preacher rather than the superficial questions that America loves, like, is this ministry growing? I mean, we all love winners. And so we want to invest in ministries that are thriving, that are building buildings, that are doing things. We want to give to successful ministries. Here's the question. Is God being glorified through the preaching of the gospel? Is this man, is this family living for Christ? Are they honoring the gospel of Jesus Christ? Let us dump our monies into this ministry, this person's ministry, the gospel. That's, that, that then stabilizes our giving. So we're not trying to like lay out like which one's going to be a winner and loser in our investment portfolio. We're giving to someone who gets it and preaches it. By the way, I think this is, that's how I, like when I look at our missionaries, I just see faithful men and women who I would love to see on our staff, who I am confident are faithful, God-loving, gospel-centered men and women. And we should have more of them. So let's keep giving faithfully to God's work because we want to partner in gospel works by taking care of the needs of our partners so that we can be partners with them in the rewards that God gives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for giving us Jesus Christ, through whose death we are made righteous. We just thank you for the simple reminder in the Lord's Supper, the declaration that by participating in and with the assembly, as we eat the bread that symbolizes the crushed body, by which you crushed the power of hell and the spilled out blood by which you forgave and satisfied your wrath against sin. We declare that we too have participated by faith in the rescue from sin that Jesus Christ offers to all who believe. We thank you for the blessings that flow to us through Jesus Christ. And when we consider how best to respond to these blessings, Lord, we thank you for texts like this, in which a very poor church gave to support a man in ministry so that the gospel would be preached free of charge, so that the gospel message of a God who loves sinners, who sent his son to die for sinners, who offers grace and mercy without charge, would be reflected in the sweet preaching of the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for servants that example for us the sacrifice of poverty, contentment and wealth, willingness to absorb brutal attacks against his person, both with words and with stones. We thank you for the example of Paul who teaches ministers everywhere to be willing to pursue the gospel preaching no matter the personal cost, no matter imprisonment or personal abuse. No matter how much accolades or shame come, he preaches the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the example of the Philippian church that gave out of their deep poverty because they loved the gospel and they loved the servant of the gospel and they cared deeply for the Savior who made it possible. And so they gave. Father, I ask that you'd stir this church up to worship Christ so passionately that giving, that serving, that attending, 
become secondary thoughts behind how best they can pursue Christ. Lord, please exalt your son in our church family through the giving, through the serving, through the reading of scripture, through the preaching of the word, and through corporate prayer. And even as we consider these things, Father, we would ask that you would guard us from a heart that is stingy and tight about money. Rather, Lord, help us to treasure Christ so that in all things he is glorified, whether it's in our finances, our expenditure of time, the way we value our reputation. Lord, above all things, help us to treasure Jesus. Help us to be satisfied with him alone. For it is in his name and for his glory we ask these things. Amen.